0: spirituality, and social transformation. And I'm very excited about today's show. Today I'll be speaking with Bob Dunham. Bob Dunham is, in my opinion, the most masterful person around when it comes to empowering people in the areas of leadership and in the area of innovation. In the interview, one of the things I'd like you to focus on is How Bob's approach takes into account the linguistic domain as well as the emotional domain as well as the somatic or body domain and his the implications of the work that he's doing in a discipline which he's started called generative leadership. In my opinion, there are profound implications for education and learning in general. He really takes an ontological approach that I think can complement the uh, primary modes of education that we have in our world today. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with the incomparable Bob Dunham. Hi friends, I'm here with uh, Bob Dunham, and uh, this is Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and I've been wanting to have Bob Dunham on the show for a long time. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Bob. I consider him one of the true geniuses in our world today when it comes to leadership and when it comes to innovation, which are two ideas and realities that are very, very dear to my heart. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how I found out about Bob originally. Um, maybe somebody mentioned his book to me or I heard him speak on a audio or video, but the minute I heard Bob I knew that uh, he was a man that I needed to get to know. So, um, Bob, welcome to the show and welcome to this conversation. Super. Thank you very
1: much, uh, David, for your invitation.
0: So I'm going to let the listeners know a little bit about your background right now. Um, Bob is the founder of the Institute for Generative Leadership, which has the mission to deliver a generative discipline of leadership and management that is observable, executable, learnable through practice, and that takes the performance of leaders and their organizations to the next level. Boy, I think we could spend the whole 75 minutes just on <laughs> that one, unpacking that one paragraph. Absolutely. And I'm going to continue. <laughs> Bob is also co author of the book, The Innovator's Way The Essential Practices for Successful Innovation with Peter Denning, published by MIT Press. He designs and delivers multi year programs in leadership in the United States and South America, including the Generative Leadership Program, known as the GLP, and the Coaching Excellence in Organizations Program, which is known as the CEO Program. Bob developed his approaches as a Vice President in Motorola Computer Systems, and Chief Operating Officer of Action Technologies, and Vice President of Business Design Associates. He's been a guest lecturer in the executive certification program for Presidio Graduate School and in the Leading by Design Fellows Program for the California College of the Arts and was adjunct faculty executive in residence in the Presidio MBA program in sustainable management for three years. Bob actively consults with client companies in innovation, management, and leadership development. Well, I don't know about you, Bob, but I need to have a glass of water after that. Hang on. Wow. righty. <laughs> One thing, listeners, I'm sure you'll find is that Bob tends to speak and write in an incredibly jam-packed, elegant way. And very often when I'm reading something Bob has written, I'll take a minute to read it, and then I'll take three or four minutes to just be with it and kind of unpack it. But fortunately, we have the wonders of technology, so we can all go back and re-listen and re-listen. And uh, before we get into the questions, I just want to share with the listeners that, uh, you know, from time to time, I come across someone that helps me to think about something in a new way. And certainly, knowing Bob and Bob's material has done that in the areas of leadership and innovation, but it's also gone way beyond that. You know, rarely I meet somebody that not only helps me to think about something in a new way, but also opens up a safe and focused space for me to be with a whole area of life in a new way, which is much deeper than just altering my thoughts about it, but it really is altering what the me is that is relating to all of this. And I find Bob's material really in that latter category. And uh, it re- you really have to be with Bob to uh, really have that open up for you. So uh, my intention is that some of that happens here. Bob, is there anything you want to say um, kind of to set an opening tone before I get into the questions?
1: No, thank you. I, I would say that if you feel that I'm having you swallow an elephant, you can just (laughs) interrupt and slow me down a little bit and we can unpack. But, uh, uh, I want this to be something that is uh, relevant, first of all, and uh, valuable. Second of all, and, uh, Actionable. Third of all, so if we if we do that as we go, then I think we'll be doing uh, doing well with the audience.
0: Okay, great. And I, I will do that. I will. I can. I know my tribe pretty well, so I can cool. listen to their listening, and I will be their proxy listener. So let's start out with some basic terms that, um, and I would like you to speak more on the slow side. Uh, what is generative leadership and what makes generative leadership distinct compared to other forms of leadership?
1: Yeah, thank you. Good, good question. I, lo- I love your, your starting with the question, what is it? Uh, one of the things I've learned on my journey is that we need to start with the question, what, before we go to a question, how? Because what is what defines the world we're in, the distinctions we use, the entities that are involved, uh, what matters. Uh, and when we start talking about how do we do something, the assumption is that we already have the what's in place. So I find it very valuable to start with the question, what are we dealing with, uh, so that we actually have a vocabulary that has some power for going further into our concerns and taking action. So if we're going to ask what is generative leadership, let me first of all uh, comment that leadership is one of these fields in our culture as i see it unfolding out there that is deemed to be very important. Lots of books, lots of speakers, lots of learning opportunities and a lot of examples of of good and bad leadership out there. But at the same time, as we look at all this material, all this conversation going on, we still see leadership is kind of rare uh, and mysterious and difficult. And so leadership is one of these places that uh, I think reflects what we call a blind spot, where we have interpretations, but they, they haven't really hit the core of answering the question, what's involved? What is it? And it it doesn't have the kind of answer that we need. And I use the the, uh, historical example of blindness as uh, Louis Pasteur uh, being credited with discovering germs. And there were some conversations about germ theory before Pasteur, but really... If you go any time before Pasteur, germs didn't exist. They, they were not part of our, our language. They were not part of our awareness. And so we were dealing with a phenomena that psychologists call cognitive blindness. You don't know something, and you don't know that you don't know. It's, it just doesn't exist for you. We're blind to it. And so uh, when we begin to look at what happened with Pasteur, new distinctions were made that transformed the whole domain of 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 healthcare that we went from not being aware of germs to being aware of them to developing new practices based on this new awareness. Uh, Washing hands was not a, a practice before and after surgery by surgeons in the old common sense. And when germs were understood to be an important part of our world, we began to have a new practice and new results. The washing of hands produced dramatically improved health outcomes. So I'm telling this story from the long way around to, to deal with blindness, because I think in, in our world today, we have a word called leadership, we have interpretations called leadership, but our lack of being able to reliably produce high levels of leadership as a common occurrence is a symptom of what I would regard as a, as a blind spot. Before germ theory, physicians and nurses and healthcare workers cared, they worked hard, um, they used the best practices of the day, and, and they were killing people and didn't know it. And with leadership, I think we have a similar situation, although there's new illuminations being provided uh, by many people, but basically we, we tend to uh, have a word, we, we work hard Uh, We use the best practices of the day. We care, and and we still don't seem to get the result we want. So if this is how I began to explore the question, what is leadership? And the term generative, the term generative arose because it's, it's an adjective. It's a way to describe the kind of answer that we want to this kind of question. What is it? Uh, when we're talking about producing a result in the world, when we're talking about producing an outcome in the world, uh, we want an interpretation that leads us to take the actions that work, that produce the result. And so in in the history of our study here, we discovered there's a difference of varieties of interpretation. Uh, one variety we call descriptive. This means that we have a name, we see something, we give it a name, but the problem with descriptive interpretations, they don't tell you how to produce what you're seeing. Uh, we we call an interpretation that actually gives you the distinctions, the, the, the vocabulary of how to produce what you're talking about, a generative interpretation. So, uh, given that uh, we see the the symptoms of a blindness around leadership, I would say we don't know what it really is and we don't have a generative interpretation for it. So let me give you an example of a generative interpretation from this background that I'm speaking from, and then I can actually answer this question, what is generative leadership and how is it different? Uh, I use the word team as my most common example of a word that could be used either as a descriptive interpretation or a generative interpretation. Because words, the way I'd say it dramatically, words don't have definitions. They only have interpretations that are listened by people of what these words mean from their own experience. And so uh, a descriptive interpretation of team, which is very common today, is that it's a group of people working together. And... Uh, doesn't tell us a whole lot. Uh, I'm not sure what working together means. I'm not sure how to do working together in a way that would produce what I call a team. So it's describing something, but it's not very generative. What we've worked with over the years, the most generative interpretation we've come up with for a team in all of our years is that a team is a group of people who share and make a shared promise, they, coordination, they coordinate action to fulfill it and to satisfy the customer of that promise. And that interpretation has actual actions. Uh, making a promise is an action. Having the conversations to make a promise is an action. A shared promise is something that you can uh, readily assess. Uh, coordinating action, uh, we could add more detail, but it's definitely showing where we need to our attention and what our criteria would be and satisfying a customer. All of a sudden, we have a much clearer, more generative, actionable interpretation of what a team is. So the term generative is referring to basing our interpretation on something we can see, we can do, that we can learn through practice and that produces the desired result. in your question of how does generative leadership compare to most leadership uh, uh, frameworks out there, uh, I would say generative is foc- focusing on this aspect of articulating what a leader does is something you can see and do, learn, that'll produce the result. That's our, that's our criteria. That's what we're looking for. And that most other leadership frameworks and models are descriptions of what happened afterwards, we have somebody did a few things and produced a result, but how do you do it? How could you produce that same result? Is less clear. Doesn't mean there isn't some value in these case studies or even these models, but it it doesn't capture the the core of the action itself. And so uh, we definitely drill down deeper in our interpretations of generative leadership, but that's what the term means in what we're trying to bring to the world and to the, the discourse of leadership is more clarity, more rigor, more actionability uh, with what leadership is and how to produce it uh, over time so that when you do make descriptive interpretations, what you're describing is good leadership or good teamwork or as, as a result. So it's a long, a long way to answer your question, but I think it begins to reveal the perspective we're looking from and that we're trying to get beyond our common sense. We're trying to get beyond the simple tips and techniques answer and really go down into what is the phenomena. And since I gave the example of team, let me let me share with you the most generative interpretation of leadership we've come up with is that leaders declare a future that other people commit to and coordinate action to bring into existence. And that's different than saying someone's a leader because they're an expert. Being an expert doesn't mean you have leadership happening. Uh, it's different than being the order giver. It's different than being the person in charge, and it's different than having a title. Uh, leadership requires followers, and uh, uh, that's, that's what we're trying to focus. These other attributes aren't negative at all. They're, they can be very helpful to be an expert or a decision-maker, but uh, we know lots of people who have titles or decision makers that are not considered good leaders. So that's that's our attempt here is to capture something that is uh, observable and doable by all of us. That's based on basic human uh, characteristics, which we'll talk about more later. So long-winded answer, but I hope we've illuminated the territory.
0: Yeah, thanks, Bob. I have a uh, request and then a uh a follow-up question to that excuse me so my request is could you say again more slowly your current definition of generative leadership
1: yeah of course so uh, what we what we're using as our interpretation of uh, uh, generative leadership which means it's something you can see and do is that leaders declare a future Declaration is a word that has some depth to it, that it's a a skill to speak in a way that people listen to you, that uh, what you're saying actually makes a difference. So when you declare a future, when you bring a story of the future into existence, uh, other people will commit to it. They will not just comply with it, not just uh, uh, abide it, but they'll commit to it. They'll take ownership of it. And so when leaders do this, it's because they have some skill at connecting to the concerns of their audience, of sharing uh, the care and commitment that would lead this act to happen. There's a sensitivity there, and this is the the action that happens, and then there's the skills to create the context in which uh, this would happen. So leaders declare a future that other people commit to. When you stop with the interpretation there, we're describing a visionary leader. Somebody says, let's go to the moon and people say, I'm with you. But then leaders are also people we see that lead the people that have committed to coordinate their actions to make this future happen. And, uh, The reason that this articulation is uh, different than, uh, you know, giving orders or declaring a project or something like that is because we're drawing forth the commitment of people. And coordination of action is something that uh, has some structure to it that really does make the difference between uh, people that are just enthusiastic or actually uh, being led to make something happen. Did I satisfy your your request?
0: Yeah, we're we're definitely. That's a great segue into my question, my follow up question, and that it, is that the sense that I get uh, when you talk about how you see and view and interact with leadership is that you see it as a set of practices and. Uh, and then at the same time, in my opening remarks, I talked about how one of the things that strikes me about your work is that it, it opens up new possibilities of, for, of being. And that brings up some really interesting questions for me about the relationship between being and practices. And I um, wanted to open up if there was anything you wanted to say about that. And, uh, you know, and the other uh, thing that struck me was when you talked about um, that, as you're defining le- generative leadership, that it involves the, de- the declaration of futures. And I thought about the fact that a future is a metaphysical phenomena. You can't, like you can point to a cup, you can point to a chair, you can point to, to the wall, but you can't point. To the future, and maybe that is an opening to this thing that I'm interested in getting at more fully. Is this connection between action and being? And uh, you may not have anything else you want to say about that right now, but it's something that's really intriguing to me, and I wanted to say that and see if there was anything. You wanted to say about that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, in, in most audiences, uh, having conversation about being is not, not a common one, but, uh, it's a very, it's a very deep notion of, uh, you know, what kind of existence is going on? What, what kind of a being is a human being? What kind of a being am I? Um, and so let me begin with a comment about the future. You're, you're saying it's a metaphysical concept, that we can't see it. But it has a very a physical, concrete existence. If I ask you about the future, what you will do is tell me a story. The future lives in our stories. Uh, we may be articulate or inarticulate with the story, but we have an embodied sense of our future and some story about it, including that it's unclear
0: or I don't know or we, we <clears throat> it's... I just mean it's a different animal than a chair or a table. Oh, absolutely. It, the, 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 in the In the deep philosophical roots that we've
1: come from, it's a difference between uh, uh, talking about a thing or what is the meaning of this thing. So, for example, a chair is a thing but the chair is also on the name of a practice called sitting on something called a chair and it wouldn't be a chair if we didn't have that meaning to it so uh we live we live in the future we're 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 always in the moment now seeing ourselves live into a future and this tends to create our moods and emotions it tends to illuminate what we care about it it often sh- Shapes where we put our attention and our action, and so uh, if we if we talk about being, one one of the philosophers we studied way back uh, that still uh, informs us a bit, Martin Heidegger. He said uh, the human being is the only being for which its being is an issue for it. We we actually have choices about being. We have a conversation about being. There's something about our existence and language that allows us to have choices about who we are who we're becoming what we're going to do and it's a very powerful aspect of being that we have something to say about the being we are and so if we go to to practices in action when when we we look at what kind of being I am and whatever framework that we're answering that question in uh, for example, in, in our work, uh, we try to bring uh, what is a being as a human being into some focus by having some very concrete aspects. What is your embodiment as the being you are? What is the emotional repertoire and patterns of the being that you are? What is the language and distinctions you live in that reveal the world to you? and that shape your actions and and practices what are the practices of your history and culture and background and these begin to show us our one way to show us this is a manifestation of of a being and and the being doesn't exist in the abstract the only way we can talk about a being is to have an observer who sees the being this way whether we're talking about ourselves or someone else so it's a a way that we engage with with this aspect of of our existence and so, the part that I think is very pragmatic and practical about leadership, uh, management, communication, relationship, many of the areas that we go with this work is that the practices are what shape us in our embodiment, including our uh, awareness and our sensibilities and our experiences and our thoughts and, and even our, our, our spiritual shape uh, come from our practices and our experiences of those practices. And so that we have become what we have practiced and we are becoming what we are practicing. And so this is a a very generative focus that if we want to shift who we are, where we're going or what we're accomplishing, and this is what I think is one of these areas that connects to what you mentioned, David, that it's not just a bunch of external uh, techniques to master. This, This has us begin to look at who are we and 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 who are we as as uh, as we are becoming and shifting through the phases of our life that uh, practices are are shaping wh- who and what we're becoming, and so this focused practice really fits into the generative framework. It's something you can see, you can do, and that has an outcome. And when people study spirituality or uh, presence or communication or love or relationship or any of these human, uh, uh, dimensions of, of, interaction, uh, we're very much dealing with, uh, what we, what we could call our being. And, and to take a posture that my being is fixed, you can't touch it. I don't want you to touch it. And I'm just going to learn some techniques. That's also a way of being, you can't escape it. And, uh, so that's the way I, I hook it up to, very pragmatic practices with the depth of our being
0: yeah thanks Bob It's interesting how in certain areas of our culture it's considered uh, 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 common for it's like commonly agreed upon that to become excellent at something uh, is an ongoing practice like in yeah. like, like in athletics. Yeah, where where you would be very surprised if Roger Federer or uh, a great golfer or a great basketball player, um, you know, wasn't hadn't paid their dues with thousands and thousands of hours of practice. And yet it's interesting how in other areas, you know, this is speaking to the blind spot in relation to leadership, how. Until recently it's been considered quite a novel idea to look at leadership in that way as a as a set of best practices that that uh, that as you wholeheartedly engage in them transform the practitioner as well exactly exactly yeah. so let's um, switch gears a little bit and get into your personal story a little bit. How did you come to, quote unquote, discover generative leadership? Maybe you can tell your story a little bit and uh, feel free to go back, you know, to the beginning, as far back as you want to go, that will really allow us to come with you on this journey. So we really get a, a deep appreciation for, for who you are and what you're bringing to the work beautiful thank you yeah i'd love love to share my
1: story i i, I went to college with the mood of a of a young man of a college age uh, full of possibilities full of fast full of fascinations and what was i going to do and what was i going to become and i wound up given the dynamic of my family and my history uh studying engineering even though i really wasn't very passionate about engineering cuz my father thought it was a very uh, good thing to do for for a career and I I kind of acquiesced to that perspective and then uh uh there were some aspects I got involved with computers early on and uh but it wasn't it, it wasn't my cup of tea and I didn't discover that till later and what happened was uh I was as often we discover uh, the, our new awakenings or illuminations or what we care about in our lives came from a set of breakdowns and, and the first breakdown was that I was working in an, in an organization that was uh, really having difficulty at the time, uh, an organization struggling to, to get products out the door in Silicon Valley and uh, uh, they were beginning to have high rates of turnover, people were leaving uh, they couldn't get a product out the door for two and a half years. Uh, There's a lot of story about what was going on and why, but they, a lot of suffering and, and it didn't look like the future was going in a, in a good direction. And I was working in this company in a, a, a research team that uh, their, the project was canceled. All of a sudden I was thrown into the mainstream culture of this company and it Uh, One of the comments in the company was, we don't communicate around here. And I looked around and said, you know, I could leave. And that looks like a good idea, given kind of the mood of things around here. But when I actually did leave, I I got a a, a job offer that I was going to leave the company. And they, they had a new vice president that had been hired. And he did an exit interview with me. He said, why are you leaving? And it's the only exit interview I ever had in my life, but I didn't have any reason to hold back. I let him have it. I said, this is this is screwed up. This is not working. This is wrong. And I really kind of felt relieved uh, from having communicated all that. But then he did something I <laughs> I didn't expect, and I don't know if I've ever forgiven him for it, But he said, I agree with everything you say. They hired me to come in and address all these issues. Why don't you stay and help me? And it really threw me for a loop. I wasn't sure what to do. I had a sleepless night and uh, finally decided based on the regret test that if I didn't take his offer, I might regret it later and I could always leave later. So I stayed. And two months later, he made me program manager for this company. It was uh, Motorola Computer Systems. And I was responsible for coordinating and directing the planning and execution of the work of 250 software engineers, 22 managers, working on 35 products. How old were you
0: at the time?
1: I must have been 32. Wow. And, uh, and uh, I'd never done anything like it before. So I was definitely in the uh, – you've probably seen the posters of the kitten hanging on a string with its claws and wide-eyed, and that was kind of how I felt. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was going around asking for help. But I'd opened my mouth saying I wanted to help change this situation, and it gave me a huge opportunity, and I didn't know what to do. And so, uh, because one of the themes of the organization was, we don't communicate around here, I saw a workshop that was entitled Communication for Action. And I said, boy, we could use some of that around here. And I went to this weekend workshop, and they opened with one of these what questions that I'd never run into before. They said, what is action? And my first reaction was, uh, I'm not sure I have a good answer. It's not something that I, you know, I didn't read the chapter last night. Uh, but I then I relaxed and said, I'm a smart guy. I had a couple of degrees from a good university and I, I could come up with an answer. But that was my moment of awakening, David. That's when I suddenly realized, here I am, a fairly well-educated member of my society, asked a fundamental question, what is action, fumbling with, with the question. And I said, now I, I better understand why our organizations struggle. We don't even have a clear, rigorous, shared interpretation of what action is. And this was like a light bulb coming on. And now I was curious. Uh, I wasn't looking for information. I was looking for what, how do you answer this question in a powerful way? And they, they proceeded to introduce me to something that has been so fundamental and powerful in my life it's a foundation of the work that i've continued ever since it's been it's been what 34 years and and they pointed out that commitment making a commitment is an act it's an action and it's actually the action that happens before any of the doing and that if you want to have effective doing you have to have effective commitments that was the revelation of a blind spot. That was new germ territory for me. And I, I was amazed that this would now show up as, as clear. They we did some exercise, it became very clear that if people are not committed, that getting coordination to happen is not getting to say yes. I got very clear that yes is not a commitment. It may be, but it's it's not by definition. And so I I began to see this whole world show up of how do you coordinate action? Is to listen, not to the words, but to the level of commitment that was going on in the conversation and to make clear agreements to coordinate around. And they showed us some ways to do that in this weekend workshop. I went back to work on Monday and I was in a different world. Uh, I began to have different conversations, I was listening differently in every conversation. My memos went from a page and a half to half a page because I was getting to the point. And I learned very quickly that if I actually organized my conversations around commitments that you could trust, then uh, people would take ownership and behave in a way that produced success. So there's several things I learned about doing that. Number one, I had to show that I was really committed to a real agreement, not, not a yes, and so uh, I didn't do this by getting in people's face. I would just hear tentativeness and say, "You know what? I you don't sound sure here, and I really need to be on solid ground." And I would coach people a little bit right in the conversation. You can say no if you can't do this, or this is not going to happen. It, it helps me more to tell me no than to tell me yes. And what can you really do? What do you really need? And by having this different kind of conversation, all of a sudden we had a, a, a culture where everybody said yes and didn't mean it most of the time to where I was insisting they only say yes, what we could really count on, that they were committed to uh, fulfill what they said. And I told them I'd be a, you know, they'd hear from me if, if, if uh, they just dropped the ball and, and, and ignore me. So please tell me what you can really do. Simply having more committed agreements shifted everything. In six months, we had all 35 products of the company out the door, on time, on budget, 10 times higher quality than had ever been achieved before, simply because we changed the conversations. Now, that was generative. That's what I now call a a, a generative shift of context. And so that's what got me started, and I was fascinated with it. I became the VP in a couple of other companies, uh, saw the stuff. We worked in different places and different different kinds of companies. And I just became totally fascinated with the human dimension. And I was uh, consulting there for a while, uh, making very good money, uh, doing consulting, helping people solve their coordination problems with – uh, for example, we did process redesign projects where we would produce, uh, eight figure returns in six months in large companies. But I found that I was frustrated because people were asking me to come in and solve their problem for them. And I would look around and say, you know what, if you learned a little bit about human coordination and what we now call generative leadership, you wouldn't have these problems. And so I dedicated myself for the last, uh, uh, six or seven years to, uh, education enterprises, doing these courses and, and learning enterprises, uh, because I wanted to work with people who were ready to learn, not have, just have a problem solve. We're not going out doing more work on a consulting basis inside companies because I find people are willing to learn in companies. Uh, now that I understand better how to help them do that. So, uh, my whole engagement with generative leadership is an engagement with the foundations of being human of what of the foundations of what action is, how we create the future together, how do we give it value and meaning? And I'm just fascinated with uh, how we are capable of doing that, but mostly when we're not doing it, we're we're locked in some blind spots or some emotional barriers and if we can, reveal those to people, then we can put our energy into creating the future that we care about rather than the frustrations that are that are still so uh, endemic. You know, when I gave the Pasteur example and he declared germs cause disease, it took 30 years before washing hands became a standard practice. And I'm seeing that shifting the leadership paradigm may have a similar uh, duration, but my, my hope is that this will eventually become uh, common sense.
0: You know, as you were speaking about the central role of commitment, I kind of had the light bulb go on for me in terms of it's a, it's an answer to the question I was asking earlier about the what builds the bridge between being and practices, and I realized that commitment is something you be you be you are committed. Exactly. You be committed. You are committed, or you are not committed, and that I think is at least a partial answer to my question of how this discipline opens up uh, transformation. How this oh. discipline opens up uh, radical shifts in being is that it 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 has that access route through. M- you know, certainly language is one access route, but it gets at, that's one way it gets at what we're being, because commitment or not commitment is something we are being in relation to something.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. What, yeah. One of the one of the uh, blind spots of our culture in the understanding of action is that it's viewed as external movement. And... We tend to have the dominating paradigm of our era when we think of organizations and uh, uh, getting things organized is the machine that we try to mechanical metaphors. You know, we want to control things. We want to have cause and effect. We want to have, but people are not components of a the machine. They're biological. They bring so much more than than a, a, a recurrent, reliable uh, movement, and and so. Uh when we're when we're focusing on this aspect of being human, we begin to see that action is as you're pointing out, you, you're calling it being. I'm I'm talking, I, I use a vocabulary of there's an internal state and in an external action. And the external action is the manifestation of the internal state. So commitment is what shapes action, but it's an internal state that then is manifested as an external agreement or, or commitment that can be made publicly, but then the behaviors that follow. And so this generative framework is dealing with the with the whole human being, with this whole aspect of being in action. And uh, when we look at, at the foundational question, one of the questions I have besides what is action is what is a human being? And the most fundamental answer that we use, in a generative sense, those things we can see and do and get a hold of, is that human beings are creatures that care. We, we, we care. Uh, we care about the future. We care about what's happening to us and those around us. We, we, we care. And sometimes uh, we get dis- disconnected from our care, and that produces a whole set of issues. That arise. But but this interpretation is what fundamentally makes us human is, is that we care. And <clears throat> care is the foundation of, of our emotions and our experience. Uh, when we're sad, it's because we care about something we've lost. When we're angry, it's because we care about something that we think is threatened. Uh, when we're anxious, it's because we care about something that may not go well. Uh, when we value something, it's because it takes care of something that we care about. When we're satisfied, it's because something we care about has been taken care of. And so if we're, if we're going to go into the, the, the interpretations of being, I think the most accessible, uh, which makes it generative, uh, area that we can deal with being is what do you care about, how connected are, are you to what you care about, and are you taking care of what you care about? And these are questions that uh, we work with people in our longer programs, and uh, they're lifetime questions. If you come up with a good answer, that doesn't mean it's going to be valid tomorrow. Those are those are the choice of being.
0: I think way- it has profound implications for leadership because uh, when we get into leaders caring, being committed to caring for the concerns of. Of, the, of those that are allowing themselves to be led by the leader, um, that really builds a bridge to leadership, and it brings up, um, it brings up, of course, the issue of trust, which um, is a very long conversation. But it's, I think, the listener is get, beginning to get a flavor for the power of this way of looking at leadership and and that it's beginning to open up new possibilities that don't limit themselves to thinking but there's new possibilities for caring there's new possibilities for trust there's new possibilities for um for for movement and motion i mean certainly one of the things that makes a human being a human being is that they have physicality. And so in addition to being able to consider things and commit to things and care about things, we have a physical body and an energetic body. And so it, it translates into action. And so I know that um, you'll probably get into it as your story, as you tell your story and more and it evolves but I'm sure that there were profound influences on you as well in terms of um, helping you to uh, gain greater mastery for yourself and then to assist others, uh, not just in the linguistic domain, but also in your relationship with your heart and your emotions and with your energy and with your physical body. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I. <clears throat> One of
1: my first teachers in this in this path was Fernando Flores, and he came up with what he called ontological design. And the word ontology has to do with what brings things into existence. It's a f- field of philosophy. How do we know things exist, and how do they come into existence? And uh, he also had been a student of Umberto Maturana, a world-class biologist. And he put together uh, uh, this incredibly illuminating framework of the power of language, and he drew from uh, speech and, and, and listening theory With that came from uh, a fellow named John Austin in Oxford and, and uh, John Searle at Berkeley, and then extended it into pragmatic application, and uh, really put a focus on emotions, and Julio Alaya is, is a, a friend and colleague of mine who has become uh, just incredibly masterful with the whole emotional domain and, and how to cope with it at a very deep level. We know emotions now are important from the work of Daniel Goleman around emotional intelligence in the 1990s. Before that, emotions were like a a, a label to get weird with in the business community. But now we understand all results come from an emotional context. You can't have excellence uh, from resignation. You can't have a great team uh, from resentment. We These are emotional states and, and skills. And the body, the body became more and more clear as as I learned and taught and practiced. I became more and more aware that these wonderful, clear ideas of Conversations that worked and committed acts, when they were executed conceptually, didn't work very well. And I'd, I'd go in and we'd find that people would fall back into old habits. Uh, they would say words without actually producing connection and, and evoking that commitment they were looking for. And we began to see that, it, that this whole domain of leadership, communication, teamwork, is what I now call a full-body contact sport. It's a, it's a performance art. Uh, you interact with someone else and they have a reaction to you. And if you are in your head doing what you think's right and don't pay attention to what you're producing in them, you're not doing leadership. Leadership is about what are you producing with someone else, including the, f- the, the full experience of their emotions and their embodiment. I, I, uh, as part of my studies in this area, i uh, studied uh, somatic leadership with Richard Heckler for four years. I was uh, practices in, in in his Aikido dojo for five years, and uh, tremendous learning about how to be centered in a, in a moment of chaos or or being attacked, and <clears throat> have continued my studies with uh, other people. A brilliant man named Bert Bennett, and uh, been studying uh, Chinese inner wisdom. Uh, traditions and acupuncture because they just they, they they are so revealing of how we link our being in, with our health and our and our physicality and so going through this journey I, I started with the structure of language because it was fairly conceptual but it was executable it was generative and it really had power but what made the conversational moves work. Were, were appropriate moves in the emotional and, uh, and uh, embodied domains or your presence or your body language. And so uh, I found that we, we, we can't do one without the other. They're, they're always together. And so our generative framework, we include body, emotions, language as they are manifested from a background of a history of practice. And when we add the dimension of somatics, the word somatics refers to the mind and body together as one, as a, as a unity. We change uh, the uh, initial B for body to S for somatics, then the, the dimensions of somatics, emotions, language, practice, and history produce an acronym of SELF. And I think it's a pretty powerful set of dimensions. For observing our being as as a self, as the coherence and the interaction of these uh, multiple dimensions, and of course we don't learn them as concepts. It's like uh, learning surfing. You have to get on the board and uh, stay on it or fall off. And living a life is the same. you You're not gonna You're not gonna do it from a conceptual framework. You have to get in and and uh, and, and play and learn through experience.
0: You know, as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of tripping back to when I read your book and uh, having the same thought that I had when I was reading your book, that the implications of this way of looking at things for education in general are incredibly powerful. Oh, I, I agree. I.
1: I have the opinion, and and I don't think it's hubris or arrogance. I have the opinion that these frameworks are are first of all non-discretionary. You, you you don't get to ignore the impact of emotions, language, and body and their impact on each other. They do shape our ourselves and our interpretations, and they do they are the domain that I call the we space of coordination, and. You know, if people are going to get educated in a profession, uh, they're never going to do the profession uh, in a closet. They're going to be doing it with other people. Uh, Kids are living together. Families live together. I think this is just a a powerful illumination, like discovering germs, that if we're not aware of it, we're going to be suffering with a lot of needless pain. And so I I would love to see this body of work be uh, a foundation For any profession, Uh, it's the human interaction dimension that's always relevant and I think would be uh, very powerful as uh, fundamental education for everyone because whenever we have people work with leadership in our programs, they almost always come back within three months and say, hey, this is making a huge difference in my family life. It's really resolving issues, producing more care and connection and love. And uh, so uh, it has has that depth, because these are not techniques for a profession. These are fundamental human uh, capacities that we're dealing with.
0: And that's what I mean when I say that the work goes to, that the work is transformational, that the work goes to a shift in being. And that's why the That's why there's such a transfer of learning into all these areas. Absolutely, yeah. So let's um, talk a little bit about the sort of the 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 dissemination of innovation, but in particular, let's talk about the dissemination of this particular innovation called generative leadership. Um, And I want to get at it. I'll put out a couple of questions and just invite you to to take either or both of them in any direction you want to go. So one way of getting at this would ask would be to ask you the question, how do you quote unquote teach generative leadership? And another way we could get at it would be to ask you what are some of the major challenges that you've identified in yourself and others as you, as, as people confront becoming, a generative leader.
1: Yeah, yeah, very good. So speaking of innovation, I, you know, I, I co-authored the book, The Innovator's Way, and we we brought in a generative framework to it. Said, what is it? Because innovation is in another one of these areas like leadership that tends to be a blind spot. It's mysterious. Uh, some people seem to be really good at it. We don't know why. We can't seem to re- replicate what they do. And then in our study of innovation, We found that successful innovators had a pattern of conversations that were generative and that they would enter these conversations and produce certain outcomes from them. That was unavoidable steps in the innovation process from from sensing the possibility to having a a vision that attracted support and interest and, and maybe even funding to making an offer. Of an innovation, to getting people to uh, adopt, and there's three adoptions along the way that we identified to sustain and integrate an innovation into practices. Because uh, in our in our framework, innovation is adoption of a new practice. Uh, you could have technologies, but if it requires people to take on a new practice, you buy a, a, a new iPhone, you got to figure out how to use it. Uh, It's not going to be successful innovation unless people find value in that. And then we found those conversations, those five steps were rooted in skills that uh, one domain we call leadership, of of getting people to listen to you, of having presence, of uh, connecting to other people's concerns, of speaking in a way they they found relevance. We we had uh, uh, producing action of being able to coordinate action and build teams and have things happen. That was always part of the game. And then we had somatics, the, the skills of, of embodiment to, to overcome your doubt and fear, to, engage, to face resistance, to uh, open yourself that people uh, would trust you. And so uh, the challenge with all of those steps and putting them all together is that it takes practice, it takes skill. And if we're going to disseminate an innovation, we need a couple of characteristics. One is it has to be uh, valuable. People find high value in it because value is the uh, assessment people have, the judgment that they'd rather put their time and energy and money into your offer rather than something else. And the biggest competitor for our offers is doing nothing. People are going to say, am I going to... Accept Bob's offer, am I going to do nothing? Life's pretty good with nothing. Uh, so it's a competitor. And so you got to have the value and then you have to have accessibility. And then value is always a conversation about resources. And so far our work with the generative leadership and, and developing it and teaching it is that it, it's, it's a high touch, high practice path, uh, for example, the uh, studies that have been done around learning, and some of them associated with high performance and mastery, it takes 300 repetitions of a practice uh, to produce any muscle memory at all. Uh, Almost all the practice-based stuff going on out out there now to encourage people to to learn something new and have it become part of their habit base requires 21 days in a row. That's the kind of quantitative results we've gotten, the pra- the result of practice is this 3,000 repetitions produces embodiment. The good news is 3,000 reps and you've embodied something. The bad news is if you practice the wrong thing, you'll embody the wrong thing. You can practice being resigned. You can practice saying, I don't want to. And so the challenge of generative leadership is providing a path that may be a lifetime path, but it's certainly a uh, a journey of practice that is that is uh, in the professional domain it it is a a professional a path of development it takes time and practice to develop these skills we provide personal coaching for people to help them with their practice because it's it's pretty hard to get through certain barriers doing it alone and so uh, only recently have uh, we've been really focusing on Uh, How do we make this more accessible to people? How do we do more outreach? And and we're beginning to look at uh, uh, more video, more internet access, more online programs. But in the end, we still have to have the practice for embodiment. And if we can learn how to do that remotely, fine, it reduces some of the costs. But the time and effort and probably a certain level of feedback and coaching are going to be going to be needed. Uh, We're not an academic uh, uh, framework where you understand information and pass a test, demonstrate something. You have to be able to perform in life. And so in our programs, your progress is rated on the results you're getting in your life. So uh, we've done, I've been working with this for over 30 years. We've done enough research to see this works. We've worked with, uh, thousands of students, we have hundreds of graduates from our multi-year programs. And now we're really looking at how do we make it more accessible, uh, re- refine it more deeply? How do we really uh, support people in the learning path that, that they want to take? Uh, and dealing with all the breakdowns and distractions that, that that has. The first thing we have to do is say that we're not going to do it in the old style. We're going to do it with practice, with real commitments in your life. And, uh, and there's quite a bit of work being done out there right now in that area. So we're beginning to look at integrating some of that uh, into our framework of body emotions and language. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll keep on marching. Our, our mission is to make this available to the world to make it more accessible, more, more relevant. And uh, I, th- I think it's time to, uh, for us to walk into the Internet age with it.
0: Thanks, Bob. Um, you know, you, you probably have already started talking about the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway in case you want to add anything. And that is, what's on the cutting edge for you these days? What are you most excited about these days?
1: Oh, my God. I I have to say that right now, what's showing up in my world uh in a very profound way, in, in almost every turn I take, it's showing up for me as, as, you know, when we have those periods of synchronicity, is the depth of uh, embodied learning. And when I talk about embodied learning, I'm talking about the kind of learning that's not conceptual, uh, that goes uh, beyond our understanding. And uh, when people have certain emotional challenges in life, uh, for example, in the U.S., one of the stories that's pretty common—I would say half to two-thirds of the people uh, that we that we encounter have a pretty strong version of uh, an embedded story that often <clears throat> doesn't show up. It's not public, but it, it's it's a challenge and it wastes a lot of energy. It's called "I'm not I'm not good enough," and it it uh, prevents them from taking on certain challenges. It has them overwork. It's like someone else is driving the bus of your life. And what we're finding is no amount of conceptual learning is going to change that deep old story. But there are somatic practices that will, that will take the energy out of that story. We call that facing the dragon and overcoming the dragon. And uh, I'm fascinated with how learning beyond concept, learning in the body has been so absent in our culture. It's becoming more and more clear to me. And it's becoming so much more available. We're having some really breakthrough results with people, uh, getting out of very old uh, barriers and uh, to their leadership and uh, to their freedom to experience. and uh, And that has been viewed in the past as a... A therapeutic issue or a mental health issue or a psychological issue. And my view is, no, not at all. It's a learning issue. It should be part of our mainstream curriculum. Everybody has their version of these kinds of challenges because it's part of our makeup. It's what we're constructed to have as human beings for survival. And we just want to learn in the body as well as in the mind. And so that's where I'm particularly focused right now. And I'm also... Continuing quite a long—that's associated with—it's quite a long, uh, that's associated with this, quite a long uh, exploration of the inner wisdom traditions of, uh, of Chinese medicine. That—that uh, that is for the same reason. How do how do we begin to get beyond cool concepts and engage in practices that really are transforming and empowering for living a, a good life?
0: That's really exciting. Uh, are you familiar with the work that's been done over the last 10, 20 years by uh, neurobiologists and neurophysiologists and being applied by some therapist that ha- that's called uh, memory reconsolidation? I, I'm not, but I,
1: I'm, I have high respect for what's been discovered in the neurobiology field and the applications that I've seen elsewhere. And uh, I suspect this is something that you're pursuing.
0: I've, I've been studying it pretty intensively. And in the hands of a really wise, spiritually awake therapist or coach, I think to apply the insights of memory reconsolidation is another way to get at the kind of learning you're getting at somatically which is how do these really deep fundamental imprint experiences that are correlated with how we unconsciously are defining ourselves and others and life and possibilities how do we how do we destabilize those neurons for a period of time so that the consciousness that's tied up in that structure can can reorganize itself at a higher level. And there's a lot of really interesting work done. And uh, I would recommend that you look into uh, a couple of books by uh, a really excellent therapist named Bruce Ecker, E-C-K-E-R. Okay. Uh, Yeah, it's really exciting what's happening. And I definitely think somatics is another way to get At that level of learning, you know, as we move toward winding it down here, I realized that one question I didn't ask, and I'm going to come back and ask it because even though it's so obvious to me, it may not be that obvious to the listener is uh, I want to give you a chance to expound on it a little bit before we go to closing thoughts is what are some of the benefits of the application of generative leadership for um, for individuals, for relationships, for companies, for communities, for our world, what are, in other words, what's in it for us as as individuals, and what's in it for us as a community of human beings? What are some of the main benefits of generative leadership?
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, well, f- first of all, this this framework connects. Our inner states to our external actions, and not only our external actions, but our shared external actions. And so, uh, our internal states, including what we care about and what we're committed to, tends to get left out of the mechanical. Uh, it's only about the the external the external action and the external result. And so, when we ignite and become aware of our own care and commitment, remember that care is fundamental to value. can't have value without care. It's fundamental to satisfaction. It's fundamental to meaning. So if we connect to our own personal care, we're going to begin seeing what's valuable, satisfying, and meaningful for us, which helps us see how to position ourselves in the world. Where does our gifts have value for others so that we can live our most alive, best self? A way of being, and and contribute to others in in whatever is appropriate, given our skills. And so, when we do that, we are now producing a life with more aliveness, with more authenticity, and with value satisfaction and meaning. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Why, why would we have a story where that's not available? or not appropriate or should be sacrificed. I think that's too often the common story of our culture. So let's first of all, realign ourselves to be a fully healthy uh, human being. Second, this then becomes a domain of skill of how we manifest that with our coordination, with our teamwork, with our relationships, with our offers, with the value we create in the world. It's totally fundamental to being a good professional, to being a good colleague, to being a valuable uh, member of the team, to being an entrepreneur, to being a leader. And so it's not a competition between some kind of personal uh, inward uh, benefit that separates from the travails of the world. No, it takes us right back into the world to be more powerful and more, more valuable and more effective. And then we really can become students of what I call the we space, where we coordinate action, where we share promises, where we literally do create the future in our stories and make it happen. Because if we're producing a crappy future, I guarantee you have a story that has elements of resignation and resentment and impotence. And if we change those stories, we can have different choices and different outcomes. So the benefits are to become more alive, more valuable, and more successful individually. The benefits are we become more effective as teams, less breakdowns, more, more focus of our energy on the success of what we're doing and what we're taking care of rather than overcoming the friction of poor, poor coordination, distrust, uh, resignation, resentment, and all the things that are triggered in social life. And when that's connected to what we care about, we can begin to have conversations about why are we doing what we're doing or why aren't we doing what we really want to be doing in terms of taking care of what we care about and producing value in the world. So I, I think this has an extraordinary capacity, and we see that in our in our program participants when they're elevating their career success with an uh, uh a, a, an improvement in their family life, an improvement in their health, uh, an improvement is how they're seen by their colleagues, or shifting their career in a direction that's more meaningful for them. And so I think it it has us wake up to the, the power we have as creators, both individually and together. And uh, my question is, why wouldn't we want that? Uh, why, why would we have some framework that <clears throat> suppresses that be what we fall into? So that's, that's what I've seen through my 30-plus uh, years. Uh, that's beautiful. Through.
0: So um, I just have a couple more questions. One is, um, how can people get in touch with you? And also, number two, any final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners?
1: Beautiful. Thank you. Well, to get in touch with us, first you can visit our website, of course. It's www. Generate Leadership.com. Generate Leadership.com. And uh, we're uh, busy making changes and improvements to it. And uh, so come check it out. We have uh, lots of blogs, recordings, uh, articles of interest, and uh, explanations of the offers we're making in the world. Uh, you can also email us at Info at Generate com. That's Info at Generate com, And Drop us a line. Uh, love to hear from you. And I think what I'd like to leave you with is uh, a, a couple of messages. One is when we're talking about leadership, the common sense in our culture is that leadership's kind of rare, and you got to be special, and it may take a long time to develop it. And I, I hold the following frame: We're all leaders already. We are all creators of the future. We may not be creating what we want but we're part of that creation. And so when we become aware that we have more power than we thought to be a chooser, to be an inspirer, to be a requester, to be an offerer for the future, then we have to be more responsible for what we're not doing and more responsible for what we can do. We are leaders. And I believe the journey of life is also a journey of leadership. What do I want to take care of in the world? What do I want to offer other people? What do I want to invite other people to make happen with me? That's leadership. And it doesn't have to be uh, with a big title or a big reputation uh, or a big scale, but to really have it be rooted in what do we care about? Are we taking care of what we care about? How do we help uh, each other share these cares and, and take care together? That's leadership. And and, and with that background, the uh a uh, little phrase we use at, at the end of our learning events I think is a good one is is to remind us of our possibility and our responsibility as leaders is to go out and create the future because you are anyway so let's go for the one we care about
0: Bob I am so uh, grateful for the opportunity that we've had to be together today and have this conversation and to share you and your work with our listeners. And uh, I want to encourage uh, my listeners, if you've been moved by this conversation, to check out Bob and his work and to share this recording uh, far and wide with others. And so, Bob, thank you again. And ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and here on Bring the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation. And with that, thank you again, Bob, and we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you. Dr. David here again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bob Dunham, and uh, I just want to recommend highly, absolutely on my highest recommendation, that if you have any interest in mastering the domains of leadership and innovation, that you really check out Bob and his work. He he can be reached through the Institute for Generative Leadership at www.generateleadership.com. That's www.generateleadership.com. So until next time, this is Dr. David, and we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes,